Exodus chapter 30, verse 1. Exodus 30, verse 1. Moreover, now remember, God is still talking with Moses. Still speaking with him. They're still up on the mountain. God has gone through the entire design of the tabernacle and then shifted gears and began talking about the high priest and all of his garments. And then shifted gears again to talk about the rest of the priesthood and what they wore, which was much less. It was just plain linen. You remember all of that as we studied it. And then last time we looked at some of the sacrifices uh, for the ordination and the consecration, the identification of the priests, preparing them for service for for the Lord. We looked at the food of the priests and the fact that uh, God did the whole thing at the end of chapter 29, verse 45, so that he could dwell among the sons of Israel and be their God. And he says to Moses, They shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. He is so focused on that eternal relation that we have with him. That eternal relation that doesn't begin when we land, when we set foot into heaven for the first time. When we actually are caught up and see Jesus. That's not when the eternal relationship begins that we have in Christ. It's already begun. We already are walking in an eternal relationship with our Lord Jesus. That's awesome to think about. It's not something that we wait for. It's something we have now. He is a friend. He is a love that we walk with in our lives today, now. And so God goes on. He says in verse 1, Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit. It shall be square, and its height shall be two cubits, and its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its tops and its sides all around, and its horns, and you shall make a gold molding or crown all around it. You shall make two gold rings for it under its molding, and you shall make them on its two side walls, on opposite sides, so there be a total of four rings, and they shall be holders for the poles with which to carry it. Verse 5, you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar. We'll see later on what happens when a couple of guys try to do that. Or burnt offering or meal offering. You shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron, the high priest, shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Tonight, we backtrack to the tabernacle. You could say we backtrackle to the tabernacle. To view and consider a piece, I just, I think these things, they come out. What, what can I say? To view and consider a piece of furniture that interestingly enough, we have not yet considered. And it's odd the way this falls in scripture. Now think about it again. Remember the tabernacle. The picture's up there. It's kind of hard to see. But the, the tabernacle, upon entering the courtyard of the tabernacle, the first thing you come to, you may recall, is the bronze altar. And then on behind the bronze altar, closer to the actual tent of meeting, the tabernacle itself, behind the bronze altar is the bronze lather. Then when you enter the tabernacle, going through the first doorway, you see on the left the golden lampstand with those seven candles and those seven cups burning perpetually. On the right side of the room, the table of showbread 
also made of pure gold and holding stacks, twelve total uh, pieces of showbread on that table. But then around behind the veil is where the Ark of the Covenant rests. And upon the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. Altogether, six pieces of furniture. But there are seven total pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, and tonight we come to the seventh. And you may wonder why. Why did God wait? Why did he go through the entire tabernacle, give Moses all the directions, all the explanations, all the design for it, these six pieces of furniture? He talked about all of its boards and sockets and coverings and the veils and the screens. And then he moves on. He leaves the tabernacle aside and goes to the garments of the priest and in the ordination of the priest. And the food of the priest. He goes a different direction. And then suddenly, in Scripture, we come to chapter 30, and God pulls a 180 on us. And goes right back to the tabernacle to talk about one more piece of furniture. Now, it's not the most significant piece of furniture in the tabernacle. That would be the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. Those two pieces that were one together, but also considered in Israel separate. That is the most significant thing in the tabernacle. And yet, this is a close second. So it's not because it's the most significant thing that I believe God waited to tell Moses about this. Why does the Lord wait to reveal this peace until now? We're going to answer that in just a few minutes. But first, remember that the tabernacle, while actually being a movable temple of the Jews, this tent was actually set up, carried with them throughout the wilderness in their wanderings. It was the place that God met with the Jewish people all the way until Solomon finally built a, a temple where the Lord, his glory resided there ultimately. But this tabernacle, this very real thing, is also a picture, a shadow. The writer of Hebrews tells us a copy of the heavenly things. And it's also a grand and intricate picture of Jesus Christ. John 1.14 tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt, as we've seen literally, tabernacled among us. And we saw His glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I want to remind you, as we look at the altar of incense, that there are two altars in the tabernacle. This tabernacle, this picture of Jesus... And all the way back here, in fact, we know all the way back to the very beginning, God was putting hints, pieces of a puzzle together, weaving together a message, the message of Christ that we see throughout Scripture. And now we come back into the tabernacle, and there are actually two altars. Two altars. The first one is the big bronze altar of sacrifice. It was the largest piece in the tabernacle. We already looked at it and talked about it, but I want you to think about this for just a moment in comparison to the altar of incense. The altar of sacrifice was big. It was seven feet by seven feet square. It was four feet tall. It was wood, acacia wood, overlaid in bronze. This was a heavy piece. A big piece of furniture, largest in the tabernacle, and I wonder how they chose the priest to carry the different items. You know, I, I would have liked to have been the guy who carried the lampstand. That'd be cool. You know, I mean, if you're going to be journeying through the desert. But can you imagine the poor guys who had to carry the bronze altar? The altar of sacrifice, that big, weighty, heavy, burdensome thing. And it's rightly so. Because the bronze altar of sacrifice is the picture of judgment. And judgment is a heavy, weighty, burdensome thing. Flipping your Bibles over to Romans chapter 2 for a moment. Romans chapter 2. I just want to read a few verses here. As Paul talks a little bit about judgment. Now what's interesting in the book of Romans is that as Paul writes this letter, he takes the first three chapters basically to set up mankind. 
In the first chapter, he talks about the overall depravity of people outside of the Lord, of mankind. In the second chapter, he begins then to talk about even those who try to do good are depraved, are fallen, are to be judged. And then he goes on to the Jews themselves and say, even God's chosen people are judged. And ultimately ends up saying, everybody is judged. Listen to these words. Romans chapter 2 verse 1, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now listen to this. Before we go on, back in chapter 1, Paul talked about such things as homosexuality. In fact, there are several verses in chapter 1 that that we in the Christian community tout as obvious, clear uh, word of God that he is not for homosexuality, that it is an abomination to him. And it's very clear in Scripture that it is. And I can't tell you how many times I have gone to these verses and said, see, right here, this tells us back in verse 18 of chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And I have used this before in the past and talking with people to explain that there is judgment coming down on this world. But I don't often spend a lot of time in chapter 2 where Paul says, hey, you have no excuse, you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. Oh, maybe not homosexuality. But there's a whole list of depravity that Paul lists. Back up in verse 30, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. <laughs> I've been insolent. Arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. These are all signals, signs, emblems of depravity. And Paul says, you know, if we judge others for these things, understand we are judging ourselves. Because we all stand before the Lord condemned, judged outside of Christ. Read on in chapter 2. He says in verse 2, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? In other words, not your righteousness, but His kindness. Verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. And I say, yeah, that's me. I want to persevere in doing good. And he says, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. That's what they have to look forward to. And I go, because that's not me. And he says, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. For the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I go, thank you, Lord. Verse 11, there's no partiality with God. And then verse 12, he begins to hit me where it hurts. For all has sinned. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law. And I understand now what Paul is driving at. 
that though yet, if there is someone who by perseverance, verse 7, and doing good, can seek glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, great. But the reality is, there's not. There's not. No amount of my perseverance in doing good can save me. Which is why Paul says in verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God. It's the doers of the law. And gang, if we've learned anything in our study of the Ten Commandments on Sunday morning, we have learned that we are not effective doers of the law. We can't keep the law. The law has really taught us right where we live. As we walk through just the Ten Commands of the Lord, these these ten pictures of righteousness before God, we realize, wow, in every single case, adultery. Now, I've never been adulterous to my wife. I've never been unfaithful to, to her a day in our marriage until Jesus says, you know, if you've ever looked at a woman with lust in your heart, and stung, and lying, and, and stealing, and all these things, that I think, oh, I was clear until I begin to see the heart of the law and understand, I'm not I am judged. I am standing. I am, I am one of the priests carrying the bronze altar of judgment. That heavy, burdensome, weighty thing, I cannot bear its weight. I can't walk under its weight. I can't travel this way. But you know the good news. And Paul is setting us up for this. Chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who work really hard and do really good and keep the law and are really... No. For all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's wonderful. I can't carry the weight of the heavy altar of judgment. So Paul says, great, believe in Jesus and cast that thing off. Don't carry around the altar, the bronze altar of judgment, the altar of sacrifice, because Jesus was lifted up and He took that judgment the bronze we talked about in the altar of judgment is that symbol of judgment. And Jesus said in John chapter 3 verse 14, As Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Pure judgment was poured out on Jesus so that I wouldn't bear the weight, the heaviness of judgment. But would be freed from it through belief in Jesus. A heavy, heavy altar. But there's another altar. The altar of incense. This golden, wonderful altar. Completely different than the altar of sacrifice. Back in Exodus chapter 30. Look at verse 2 again. It says, Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit, and it shall be square, and its height shall be two cubits, and its horns shall be of one piece with it. If you can imagine for for a moment a nightstand, that's what we're talking about. It's a cubit by a cubit square. That's about a foot and a half. And it's two cubits high, three feet. This is a little altar. It's a tiny little thing. It's not heavy. It's not difficult to bear. It's small. And yet next to the ark, it is the most significant and sacred article in the tabernacle. And we're going to look at this. What is it that's so special about this little altar of incense? Especially as it is so different than the other altar outside of the tabernacle, that bronze altar of judgment. 
What's so special about it? Well, here's where we find our answer to our original question. Why does God wait to present the altar of incense until we get to chapter 30? Why take that left turn and suddenly talk about the priest? I I thought we were done with the tabernacle. But all of a sudden, God comes right back around again. And I believe this is the reason. The altar of incense is discussed after the garments and sanctification of the priest because, because it takes a priest to pray. Because it takes a priest to pray. What does that mean? Well, the altar of incense is, in the Old Testament, in the Bible, the picture of prayer. That's what it designates. That is what it symbolizes. Not just prayer either, but intercessory prayer. The prayer in which one intercedes for, comes before another, prays for another person. This is what the altar of incense is all about. It's a portrait of prayer. David Levy in the book The Tabernacle, Shadows of the Messiah, an excellent book by the way, if you're looking at if you want something that describes the tabernacle, has little drawings of it, and compares it to Jesus throughout. A lot of the information that I've shared with you, I've drawn from that book. It's called again, The Tabernacle, Shadows of the Messiah by David Levy. And he writes the following. He says, The sun was rising over the horizon as the priest entered the holy place to trim the lampstand and offer sweet incense on the golden altar. He never minimized his high holy privilege of serving in the tabernacle. He alone was the mediator who offered intercessory prayer before a holy God on behalf of the nation of Israel. The priest took a censer full of burning coals from the brazen altar in one hand and specially prepared sweet incense in the other hand and ignited the incense by sprinkling it over the burning coals in the golden altar. A thick cloud of smoke curled upward, filling the tabernacle, symbolic of Israel's prayers to God. So you see, that's what happened at the altar of incense. The priest would come into the altar of incense, and as he was offering up incense along with the incense, he was offering up prayer for the people of Israel. And while the incense was going up, and as the people on the outside of the tabernacle could smell that sweet aroma as it flowed up into the sky and spread out, they knew they were being prayed for. They knew the priest was interceding on their behalf, intercessory prayer. And this is what the altar of incense signifies, what it's all about. I love this story in the book of Luke. Chapter 1, you can flip there or I'll just read it to you. You can flip quickly. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5 tells us the following story. We read in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. You may remember Elizabeth. She ends up being the mother of John, John the Baptist. Verse 6, they were both righteous in the sight of God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they both were advanced in years. I love how God looks at elderly couples as the prime people to bear children. He did it with Abraham and Sarah. Here again we have now Zacharias and Elizabeth. In verse 8 he says, It happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Zacharias is standing right here at the altar of incense, the golden altar. He's in the temple now, because now the temple has been built. This is actually the second temple, Herod's temple. And as he offers this incense, watch what happens. It says in verse 10, The whole multitude of the people were in prayer 
outside at the hour of the incense offering. Throughout the Bible, you will continue to see this. The altar of incense is a picture of prayer. But read on. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, I should think so, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Huh. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. You know what's great about this story? Zacharias, the priest, is supposed to be in there interceding on behalf of the people, but he's throwing in a few for himself as well. He's interceding on behalf of himself. And he can't help but do that. I mean, you, you, know, you know what happens when, when you're praying for someone else. How often, as you're in prayer to the Lord, something in your life or something personal or dear to you begins to kind of filter in. And, and maybe sometimes we say, oh no, I'm sorry, Lord, I, I, I don't mean to pray for myself. I need to pray for this other person. Hey, it's okay. Prayer is that open communication with God. And we may bring God a mixed jumbled bag of stuff when we pray. But our Father wants to hear it all. He wants to hear it all. And so here's Zacharias and he's praying. He's praying for the people and he's saying, oh, and by the way, Lord, while I'm here, could you help Elizabeth? Could you bring a child into our lives? I mean, crazy old man, what are you thinking, Zacharias? But Gabriel shows up. Gabriel, by the way, is always the angel, the messenger angel who comes for Israel. He's the one always connected to the people of Israel when God has a message for them. You see in the book of Daniel throughout, Gabriel is the one who shows up and talks to Daniel and explains things to him. And that's significant as you study through the Bible to understand that. But Zacharias was offering incense on the altar. He was praying when Gabriel showed up. And in the Bible, not only does the, the altar of incense portray prayer, but incense itself portrays intercession. Incense portrays intercession. Psalm 141, verse 1. David writes, and he had such great insight. He says, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. Later in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, it tells us when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. This is that fantastic scene in heaven. And it says, each one were holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. And in the book of Revelation, John says, oh, and by the way, the incense are the prayers of the saints. Incense, intercession. Incense signifying the prayers of the saints rising up as a sweet fragrance to God. And now listen to this. Check out this powerful picture of prayer. Further on in the book of Revelation, chapter 8, verse 1. tells us when the Lamb broke the seventh seal. And you're like, the seventh what? Did you say seal? Yeah, seal. There are three sets of judgments in the book of Revelation. This is now the second set of judgments called the seal judgments. Or no, I can, no wait, this is the first set, isn't it? No, it's the second. Am I right on that? No? I'm going to have to look that up. Which, which one is it? Anybody know off the top of your heads? Seals, trumpets, and bowls. So it's the first set of judgments at the, at the end of the set of judgments, and each one has seven in it. Okay, thank you. Yes, it's seals first. So it's the seventh seal, but watch what happens. When that seventh heat seal was broken by the Lamb, it tells us, and this is interesting, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. 
the Lamb takes this seventh seal and breaks it. And all heaven comes under a holy hush. It goes on, it says, I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. But we're talking a half an hour of absolute silence in this moment. What's going on here? Lots of commentators have speculated on this one, but Scripture goes on and simply explains it. It tells us exactly what's going on. If you read further, it says, Another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. Here it is. Remember, the tabernacle is a shadow, a copy of things. Now in heaven we're seeing the real thing, the actual golden altar of incense that John saw in his vision before the throne. And so this angel comes, stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up out of the angel's hand before God. Amazing. Here we are watching this occurrence in heaven. Not in the tabernacle, but in the real things, the true emblems in heaven, these true pieces of furniture. And by the way, of the seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, you can trace every single one of them to the picture the Hebrew writer draws for us in heaven, except one. The bronze altar isn't there. The altar of judgment. That's the cross. But every other one you see portrayed in heaven. The golden altar of incense is there on which the very prayers of the saints are offered up with incense. And when those prayers are offered, the reason why there is silence in heaven, I believe, my personal view on this is God says, Hush, my people are praying. Cherubim, be quiet for a minute. I appreciate the holy, holy, holies, but my people are praying. Elders, stop casting the crowns just for a second. Give me half an hour. My people are praying. And the Bible indicates to us that our prayers to the Lord are as sweet as incense to Him. And when we offer up prayer to the Lord, everything stops. And He listens. And He hears. The golden altar of incense and that incense going up is a picture for us of the prayers of the saints. You and I. You may feel like there are times when you're distant from the Lord. When you're in prayer and you're just not quite sure prayer is getting through. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But you need to understand and know what the Bible tells us is when God's people pray, He shuts everything down and listens. He pays attention. He desires. He longs for. He wants to hear from you. And whether you're feeling it or not is completely beside the point. When you come to the Lord in prayer, He listens. But the golden altar of incense doesn't just picture the prayers of the saints. It also pictures the prayers of the Savior. Go back to Exodus chapter 30 again. Exodus 30 and verse 3. Reading on it says, You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns. And you shall make a gold molding all around for it. The gold molding, that literally again is a golden crown. And if you picture again this little nightstand, this golden nightstand is what it would look like. Three feet high, a foot and a half square, and all the way around was was molding. The, The Bible calls a crown, a golden crown that came up above the top of this thing and went all the way around. What was its purpose? What was it there for? It held the incense in. It kept the incense from falling out on the ground. As the, as the priest was offering the incense, it was kept there by the golden crown. Now think this through. The first time Jesus came, he wore a crown. 
crown of thorns. He wore that when he was judged, as it were, on the bronze altar. But now, as you read in Scripture, what does Jesus wear? He's wearing a golden crown. A crown with many diadems. By the way, just a side note, diadems, this came up actually, Donna, when we were talking a couple weeks ago about, about the, uh, the turban that the high priest wore. And there's a description in that of a diadem that is on the turban. And it's a good picture for us to understand what a diadem exactly is. Some have said, well, a diadem is just a crown. No, a diadem is a part of a crown. For on the turban of the high priest that we studied about a couple weeks ago, there was a golden plate that was attached by blue cords onto the turban. That golden plate had written on it, inscribed, do you remember what it said? Holy to the Lord. That was a diadem. And so when the Bible talks about Jesus wearing a golden crown of many diadems, it many of these things all around and on the crown that Jesus wears. But he's wearing a golden crown now. Not a crown of thorns, not the crown of judgment, but the crown of victory. And as he wears this golden crown, and we look now at the golden crown that's on this altar of incense, which in and of itself is a picture of Jesus, the golden crown on the altar holds in the incense, keeps the incense in the same way. My prayers are not lost on Jesus. They don't fall to the ground where Jesus is concerned. They're, they're kept. They're held by Him. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. And Jude 24 says, He is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. There is incredible comfort and strength and peace in simply knowing this wonderful truth, and we've said it before, but we'll say it again. That Jesus is praying for me. We saw a couple weeks ago, looking at John 17, how on the night he was betrayed, Jesus prayed for us. How he prayed not only for his disciples, but those who would believe in him through their word. Well, that's you and I. But that's not the only time Jesus prayed for you. He is praying for you in this moment. As we study, he is praying. He goes before me to the throne of his Father. He is the great intercessor. He intercedes for us constantly before God and Jesus is praying us through this life and gang, He will not lose a single prayer. Not a drop of prayerful incense will land on the ground because Jesus keeps it in in the same way that crown around the top of the, of the altar of incense kept in the incense. Jesus doesn't lose a single prayer. He doesn't even lose the prayers that come without a word. Romans 8.26 In the same way the Spirit helps our weakness. For we don't even know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. What Spirit? The Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And again tonight, this very moment as we're studying, he's praying. When we were worshiping, He was praying. When I struggle, He prays. When I'm in a mess, He intercedes. Jesus is praying always for us. And so, you know, there are those times in our lives, and it's funny, I think if there's one thing Christians find themselves guilty of, it's when we stop and realize how little we've been praying. And we go, oh Lord, I'm sorry I'm back again. I haven't talked to you for a while and I really should have and I feel bad about that. The reality is whether we're praying or not, Jesus is praying for us. 
constantly interceding on our behalf before the Father. But how often does He do that? Look back at Exodus chapter 30 again. The altar of incense, verse 8, tells us, When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. And there shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. And in the same way, in this little picture of this golden altar, we have a much grander picture of Jesus who is praying perpetually for us. The priests would go in. They kept the lamps lit. They kept the fires burning. And Jesus constantly, constantly prays for His people. How often? Always. When does he stop? When does he take a break? Never. He always lives, the Hebrew writer says, to make intercession for us. He did it for Peter. Love this verse. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, is now preparing his disciples for the most traumatic weekend of their lives. For something they couldn't even imagine, couldn't fathom, was actually going to take place. The crucifixion of the one they loved. But as he's preparing them, he looks at Simon and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to to sift you like wheat. Satan wants to take you out, Simon. To wipe you clean. He wants to rip you off and tear you up. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says, this is going to be a tough one for you, Pete. You're going to watch as I'm taken away. Jesus knows this. You're going to see as the soldiers take me. But worse yet, you're going to betray me three times. He will tell Peter in a few verses further. You're going to betray me. But, oh, Peter, I've prayed for you. I'm in your corner. I'm with you. Even knowing ahead of time that Peter was going to betray him, Jesus was praying for his strength. Praying that after his betrayal... He would be strengthened again. He would find faith again and then come back to the Lord and strengthen the rest of the followers. Jesus constantly intercedes for His people. But this is an important question. Something I had to kind of struggle through this week. Who are His people? Who is it really that Jesus intercedes for today? Again, Hebrews 7.25 says He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. It's very specific in the Bible who Jesus prays for, who He intercedes for, and it's those who draw near to God through Him. It is those who believe in Christ. And that is it. We toss around the word prayer today like it was nothing. Whether people believe in Jesus or not, I'll pray for you. you You're in my thoughts and my prayers. How often is that phrase used in a secular way? We're going to share a moment of silence so that we can pray for or just think about what is What does that phrase mean anyway? You're in my thoughts. I mean, like Jesus interceding? I don't think so. Normally we'll say, hey, you're in my thoughts, and then we go about other things, and we're not thinking about the person at all. And especially someone who is outside of Christ, who's not a Christian, who doesn't live in Christ, saying, hey, I'm praying for you. Well, guess what? And this is difficult, but you're going to have to follow this through. Listen, God is not hearing their prayers. Wait a minute, Rick, you're saying that God doesn't hear the prayers of non-Christians? That's exactly what I'm saying. There's an interesting scene in Shakespeare's Hamlet where Hamlet's murderous uncle Claudius, the one who murdered Hamlet's father, is praying in a chapel. 
Hamlet comes kind of sneaking up. He's got a knife with him, a dagger. And, and, and the whole time, you know, the play Hamlet is about Hamlet trying to decide does he avenge his father or not. And the whole play is, you know, played out in Hamlet's head. He's trying to figure out what to do. And he can't be decisive. And he looks in and he sees his uncle Claudius praying. And he thinks to himself, I can't kill him while he's praying. He'll go right to heaven. So he puts the dagger away and takes off. And then the scene shifts to Claudius, who is praying these words. He says, My prayers go up. My thoughts stay low. Prayers without thoughts never to heaven go. The reality was he was not in communion with God at all. Because prayers without thoughts never to heaven go. And I would take this a further step. Prayer without the crown of Jesus' intercession falls flat. And does not reach the ears of the Father. Prayers without Christ never to heaven go. Some of you may have seen that movie Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey. Where Jim Carrey is playing a guy who gets to be deity for a while. Gets to take on the role of God. And there's a very interesting scene in it where he makes prayers come in email form. And they're all showing up on his computer and they're just, it's going nuts. And he, can't, he cannot keep up with it. And so he determines just to answer yes to everything. And chaos breaks out because he can't handle it. But there's something really faulty in this theology, Hollywood theology. The faultiness is its interesting and, and they're making a point that, that God must be awesome to be able to hear the prayers of so many people. But the faultiness is this. God doesn't hear the prayers of as many people as we might think he does. Because he only actually hears the prayers that are interceded for by Jesus. In other words, prayers offered up through Jesus by those who believe in Jesus are you saying really Rick that God doesn't hear people's prayers outside of Christ all except for one prayer there is a prayer that God hears for those who are not in Christ have mercy on me I'm a sinner that prayer he hears that prayer he hears and responds to but outside of Christ According to what I read in Scripture, God does not hear the prayers of people lifted up. How can you say that? Because of this, only the priests can go to the altar of incense. Look at that picture. The altar of incense inside the tabernacle, the average person could not go to. Only the priests could enter in there. Only those who are washed, only those who are robed, only those who are consecrated could bring the prayers of the people to the Lord. Let me give you another example. Turn to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, chapter 26. If you're having a hard time with this, that's okay. Just, just stick with me a minute longer here. Second Chronicles, chapter 26, verse 16. An interesting story about a king in Judah. A king by the name of Uzziah. King Uzziah was actually, well, started out a pretty good guy. And it tells us in verse 16 of 2 Chronicles, oops, 2 Chronicles, not first. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. If you look back prior to verse 16, it tells us that God helped King Uzziah as he warred against the Philistines and against the Arabians who live in Gerbal. This is back in verse 7. And against the Mayunites. God helped him and made him quite prosperous and quite successful. Tells us down in verse 15 of 2 Chronicles chapter 26. In Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence his fame spread afar. 
For he was marvelously helped until he was strong. King Uzziah of Judah, great King Uzziah, good King Uzziah, prideful King Uzziah. Verse 16 says, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Well, then Azariah, the priest, entered before him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the altar of incense. Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out, because the Lord had smitten him. And it tells us King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. For the rest of his life, King Uzziah remained a leper. Why? Because he was not consecrated, because he was not clean, because he had no business going to the altar of incense and offering up incense and prayers before the Lord of the people. That was the role of the priests. It belonged to them. It was not his to accomplish. The altar of incense is where the priests go. The wash, the robe, the anointed. Not even kings. Not presidents or rulers or authorities, just the priests. Who are the priests in the church? Who are the priests in the world today? Peter says you are a royal priesthood, a people of God's own choosing. And it's the priests who are able to bring the prayer to the Lord. But gang, listen to this. This is very important. It's not because the priests themselves were priests that they were able to bring the prayer. It was because of the high priest. It was because of a single action that only the high priest could accomplish that the rest of the priesthood was able to bring prayers on the altar of incense before the Lord. Look back in Exodus chapter 30 again at verse 10. Verse 10 tells us that Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. Remember, this, this little nightstand altar of incense had on each one of its corners horns that literally stuck out in four different directions. And it tells us once a year Aaron made atonement on these horns. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now listen, this is an altar. And where there is an altar, there is sacrifice. That's what an altar is about. That's what an altar is for. There's the bronze altar where the major sacrifice and all the blood happened outside, but come into the holy place. And there on the, on the altar of incense, on those four horns, once a year on that special day, do you remember what the day is called? It's the Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, one time each year the high priest would touch the blood of the sin offering to the four horns on the altar that his prayers and the prayers of the priest would then go up to the Lord, that the altar of incense would itself be sanctified. There is one reason 
And if you thought for a moment it was haughtiness for me to say that Christians alone can reach the Father in prayer, there's only one reason why our prayers reach the Lord. Because we have an intercessor named Jesus Christ. Because it is through Jesus that our prayers reach the ears of the Father. The only prayer that I can find in Scripture that is heard by God outside of Christ once Jesus comes on the scene, once the crucifixion has happened, is the prayer of the man who says, Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. God hears that prayer. And in that moment, instantly, He will hear every prayer that person prays the rest of their life because they have come into Christ, the intercessor, the one who goes before us. Never forget, gang, our very opportunity to bring supplications, intercession to the Lord is through the sufficiency of Jesus and it came at the high price of sacrifice. Jesus is our day of atonement. He is our Yom Kippur. And listen to what Jesus says. His own words, John 17 verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. But of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. These are the people Jesus prays for. These are the people Jesus intercedes for. Intercession literally means to pray on behalf of another. To intercede for another person. And Jesus intercedes for those who draw near to God through Him. Now you may say, well, then what chance do my family and friends have who are outside of Christ if God's not hearing their prayers? And listen, gang, we need to understand this because people all the time are asking for things with no relation to Christ whatsoever. But it is through Jesus that we reach the Father at all. Without Jesus, we cannot reach the Father. We cannot come before Him. And so we may say, okay, so what about that? What about friends of mine who are outside of Christ? You're saying that when they pray there's no hope. You're just saying that family members can't reach God. So how does this work? What hope do they have? What chance? Two things. Number one, John chapter 16 verse 8 tells us that when He comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit is at work. And whether someone's prayers are reaching the Father or not, He is in the act of conviction. It's why any of us ever came to the Lord, because He convicted us. He pointed out to us somehow, I'll tell you what, it wasn't our sin nature that found Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit at work in the world convicting us of our sin. And once we became convicted, then we understood, then we called out the prayer, Have mercy on me, a sinner. And then we were immediately captured into the heart of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit is hard at work. Those friends of mine who are outside of Christ, He is working them over. He is convicting them right and left. And all they have to do is listen. But they have another opportunity as well. They have you to pray for them. They have you to intercede. And the most powerful thing you can do for a friend or family member who is outside of Christ is pray for them. As a matter of fact, it's better that you pray for them even than you try to pound them over the head with Scripture. You've had those conversations, I imagine most of you at different times, where you've talked to somebody and you've tried to lay it out and they're not getting it. You're going, come on, why don't you understand? Let me explain it another way. And you find yourself getting frustrated. And yet when you pray for the person, it's a totally different thing. You are calling down a power that you don't have. A wonder that we don't possess ourselves. You're asking the Lord to go and intercede for you, for them. 
example. Where there is an altar, there is sacrifice. And prayer does require sacrifice. But it's not only that picture of sacrifice for Jesus. Prayer requires sacrifice on our part as well. Not like the sacrifice of the high priest. But all that we do in ministry for the Lord, of all that we do, nothing is harder than prayer. Nothing is harder than prayer. Of all the things that we do. Wait a minute. I thought you said before it wasn't a heavy burden like the bronze altar. And no, it's not. As a matter of fact, by comparison here, there's nothing sweeter, nothing more fragrant than intercessory incense, than prayer. But it also seems to be the hardest thing for Christians to pause and do. James says in James chapter 5, verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and there to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So why is it so hard for Christians to do this? Partially because there's nothing Satan rails against harder than prayer. There's nothing the enemy wants to battle and combat more than prayer. Even your study of the Bible, even your witness to friends, even acts of ministry and service, he doesn't fight as hard as he fights against prayer. Because you see, while Jesus is interceding, Satan is interrupting. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, John calls him the accuser of our brethren. While Jesus intercedes, Satan's going, hey, did you see that? You see what he just did? You're going to let him get away with that? Oh, that's terrible. Come on. And he's whispering those same things to us. Look at you. Look at how you're acting. Oh, you are, you are no Christian. Why are you even getting up to go to church this morning? <laughs> you don't belong there. You don't deserve that. The accuser of the brethren. Interrupting the prayers of the saints. Why? Because if he can shut you up, if he can turn me off or stall the prayers of the saints of the Lord, he can actually deceive us into a sense of distance from the Father. I said earlier, have you ever felt that when you're praying? Like, man, I, I, I'm just not connecting here. God, I, I don't know if you're there. I don't know if you're listening. I just feel so far away from you right now. And Satan's going, yeah, this is great. He wants there to be that sense of distance. Look back at our text. Verse 6 in Exodus 30 says, You shall put this altar in front of the veil. That is near the ark of the testimony. In front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony where I will meet with you. The altar of incense was located in the holy place just this side of the veil. And it was, of all the other pieces of furniture, it was the closest piece to the mercy seat. Just on the other side of the veil, from the mercy seat. It was as close as any priest could get to the Lord. For all those Levites, for all those in the priesthood who were not the high priest, who didn't have that honor of going through the veil to the mercy seat itself on that one day a year, the Day of Atonement, for all the rest of the priests, this was the closest they could get to God. And I imagine it must have been sweet for Zacharias on that morning when he was praying for his wife Elizabeth to be in there at the altar of incense. Talk about intimacy. 
To be alone with the Father as the incense is going up and you alone are talking with God and praying to Him and having this special, intimate time with the Father. That's the closest any priest could get with the exception of the high priest. But watch this. Flip in your Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 9. We've got a problem. We've got seemingly a contradiction in Scripture. And a very clear one. A very black and white. I mean, when you just read it on the page, you look at this and you compare it back to Exodus 30, you will see contradiction. And it's a problem that we have to deal with before we finish tonight. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. The Hebrew writer is saying, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Remember I told you before in the book of Hebrews, he talks about the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly tabernacle. Well now he says of of the earthly one, verse 2, For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which there was the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, and this is called the holy place. Behind the second veil... There was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, watch this, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Oops. The Hebrew writer got it wrong. He got it wrong. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that the altar of incense is not in the holy place, but it's in the Holy of Holies right next to the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. It's on the other side of the veil. And we know from reading in Exodus chapter 30, no, it's not. It's, it's on, in the holy place, not the holy of holies, not the most holy place, not the, the deepest room, but it's just outside of that, according to God's regulations. So what's going on here? What is the Hebrew writer doing? Is this just a, a mistake of penmanship? Or maybe one of the scribes through the years accidentally messed that one up. Gang, if you believe in the authority of Scripture, you cannot believe that. If you accept that the Bible that God has given us, that He was sufficient and is able to keep His Word pure for us through all the last 2,000 years and beyond that for the Old Testament Scriptures, then we've got to understand, no, it wasn't a scribe's fault, that this is what God intended to have written. Well, three possible quick explanations. Number one, the altar of incense itself was actually considered by some to be part of the veil. So whether it was on this side of the veil or that side of the veil doesn't matter because it was the language indicates that when the veil was talked about and the altar of incense was talked about, they may have actually even been connected. I mean, it was right up, it butted right up against the veil itself. And so as the Hebrew writer wrote that it was in the Holy of Holies, maybe he wrote that because the veil and the altar of incense were so closely, intimately related that which side it was on was beside the point. Well, that's, that's one theory. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, Let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But a second possibility, and this is interesting to think about or consider, is that the altar of incense got moved. That somewhere between the time of the tabernacle and now the time of the second temple at the writing of the book of Hebrews, it got moved. The altar of incense originally in the tabernacle was in the holy place, but somehow someone messed up somewhere along the way and it got stuck inside the most holy place. And if that's possible, if that happened, if it was because someone messed it up along the way, It's kind of cool to see that God did his work anyway, even though the furniture was in the wrong place. Which is really nice to think about when you're involved with a young, fledgling church like this one. 
If we get the furniture in the wrong place, God's still going to do His work. Even when mankind messes it up or confuses things, God still works. He still does what He does. That's an amazing extension of His grace. Sometimes the furniture in our lives gets messed up. Our priorities get out of whack. God gets the backseat, prayer, Bible reading, fellowship. These things get set aside or shuffled around and end up in the wrong place in our lives. And yet, amazingly, God still works. In fact, what amazes me more than anything else is that God works through human agency at all. The fact that He can use you and I, that He can take my life and make something of it at all, is miraculous. It's supernatural. And John 15, 16 says, amazingly, you, you did not choose me. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask in, of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So maybe because the altar of incense was considered part of the veil or maybe because the altar of incense actually got accidentally moved maybe that's why the Hebrew writer wrote what he wrote but I think the third explanation is the best of all I think this one is probably right on the reality is when the Hebrew writer wrote his letter the veil had already been ripped in two the veil of separation that separated the most holy place from the holy place no longer held fast. With the death of Jesus, with Him taking the judgment, with that veil being ripped, now that altar of incense will be sitting right there, right next to the mercy seat, with no veil between it. The Hebrew writer, I believe, understood that. And now we have open access to the Holy of Holies through the one true veil, which is what? What is the veil a picture of? Remember, we we talked about this a couple or three weeks back. Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20 tell us, The veil, the veil is the flesh of Christ. The veil that we pass through to get to the mercy seat is Christ's flesh. That was the whole symbolism of the veil itself. That's why God put the veil up in the first place. That later on he could tell us as the high priest passed through the veil so you now can pass through the veil and come to the mercy seat through the flesh of Jesus. Amazing. The veil was ripped but the golden altar of incense remains. And it is the place where our prayers are met with the intercessory ministry of our great high priest. But the altar does imply, again, sacrifice. Mark Hall, who's the lead singer of Casting Crowns, wrote this in a song. And I'm just going to read you the lyrics to the song. It's awesome. The song is called, What If His People Prayed? What if the armies of the Lord picked up and dusted off their swords, vowed to set the captives free, and not let Satan have one more? What if the church, for heaven's sake, finally stepped up to the plate, took a stand upon God's promise, and stormed hell's rusty gate? What if his people prayed, and those who bear his name would humbly seek his face and turn from their own way? And what would happen if we prayed for those raised up to lead the way? Then maybe kids in school could pray, and unborn children see the light of day. What if the life that we pursue came from a hunger for the truth? What if the family turned to Jesus and stopped asking Oprah what to do? He said they would hear. His promise has been made. He'll answer loud and clear if only we would pray. 
If my people called by my name, if they'll humble themselves and pray. If my people called by my name, if they'll humble themselves and pray. What if his people prayed? Now he's kind of piggybacking off of the verse in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Maybe you've heard it. This, this verse that has been used actually for the National Day of Prayer. It's quoted often in churches. There's only one problem with this verse. It's not for the church. Let me read it to you quickly. The Lord appeared to Solomon at night. And he said to him, I have heard your prayer. This, by the way, is the dedication of the first temple. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And listen to what he says. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, then my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And while that sounds really good as a prayer for America, it was not a prayer written for America. It is a prayer for Israel. And as a matter of fact, if you take this and overlay it against the tribulation that is coming, the day of Jacob's trouble that is for Israel, these exact things are going to happen. These exact things are prophesied. God is going to shut up the heavens so there is no rain. He is going to command the locusts to devour the land. He is going to send pestilence among his people. Read about it. Revelation 6 through 19, it's all there. And how are the Jews going to respond? Well, a good number of them are going to humble themselves. And they are going to pray. And they are going to seek God's face and turn from their wicked ways. And God will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. When God says this to Solomon, he is prophesying as well as promising. This will happen. I am going to make this happen. In the meantime, we in the church have access to God. As our prayers meet with Jesus' intercession before the throne of grace, that altar of incense, it's a little thing, this altar of incense, not burdensome or weighty, and our prayers the same way need not be theological or wordy, but just simple and perpetual and constant. In fact, I tend to think the more simple our prayers are, the sweeter they will smell. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 We take Paul's advice Pray without ceasing Let's pray Father in heaven I guess the first thing I want to ask Is that you would remove the burden of guilt That so often accompanies The openings of our prayers That you will allow us Just to come before you With simplicity of thought not with great oratory, not with many words. Oh, Jesus, you even said, it's not for their words that, that people will be heard. It's not for babbling on like, like pagans will babble on. That's not what reaches the ears of the Father. And we understand tonight is that it is a prayer offered through you, Lord Jesus, as our intercessor. And Father, a lot of us, we don't have the words. We're not even often sure exactly what to pray. Lord, there are those among us very gifted in the realm of prayer and intercession. And they're like precious incense among us. But Father, there are also many who just aren't sure what to pray. And so prayer goes unspoken. 
So lift, Father, from us this, this doubt, maybe this faithlessness, this guilt that, that shouldn't, that need not accompany prayer. This is not a heavy thing. Father, I, I just want to ask personally that you'll do whatever you need to do in our lives to bring us to our knees, to drive us to prayer, to bring us closer to you through Jesus, our intercessor. And Holy Spirit, in those moments, and those moments are many when we're not even sure what to pray, intercede anyway. Search our hearts. Move through our minds. Seek us out. Search and know, Lord, if there's any wickedness in us at all and, and heal us, cleanse us of that. And then take that deepest desire of our hearts, which truly is the same as your desire, Father, to be with you. And lift it up as incense, as a sweet aroma, a sweet fragrance. Dear Jesus, intercede for us before the Lord. Father, we praise you and thank you that this golden altar of incense is such a powerful picture of such a simple thing. And we pray, Lord, you would increase our prayer. I pray that you would increase the prayer of the Bridge Christian Fellowship. I pray that as a body of believers here, that we would be focused on prayer, involved in prayer, giving our hearts to you in prayer constantly. That we would not move forward or take a single step or action without praying and seeking first your will and your desire for us. God, even as we pray tonight, I know that there are many requests, many needs, many desires. I pray that you'll hear them. Read our hearts tonight, Lord. Seek those things that are hurting us, whether it be the past violations into our lives, past struggles, Father, sins that we've committed that we, though you have long since thrown as far as the east is from the west that we can't seem to let go of. Physical ailments, Father, that, that attack us. The worries and stresses and fears. Would you read all of those in our heart and in your wonderful power, Holy Spirit, relieve us of those tonight. Take them out, not as ugly, dark, and difficult things, but turn them into prayer. Change them to incense before the Father. Because we know that a prayer interceded for by Jesus is a prayer heard by you, Lord. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time tonight. Bless us as we go out of here and tap us on the shoulder and remind us to pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.